Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Comedian Hannah Gatsby shocked to international attention this year with her stand-up show, Nanette. I'm sure many of you have seen it. And if you haven't seen it, it's one to watch uh, in the next few days because it's just brilliant. It's called Nanette and it's extraordinary. That's all I can say. But Hannah Gatsby also stole the show this week during her very brief but much talked about appearance at the Emmy Awards. She had a cracker of a joke and a great, great couple of lines. The Australian was presenting the award for outstanding direction for a drama series. But her few minutes on stage set off calls on social media for Gatsby to host the entire show next year. And I really hope that happens. And in case you missed it, here is Hannah. (laughs) This is, this is not normal um (laughs) the the world's gone a bit crazy uh i mean for somebody like me and uh, nobody from nowhere gets this sweet gig free suit new boots uh just because i don't like men (laughs) just (laughs) that just that's a joke of course uh just jokes fellas calm down um, it's, you know, hashtag not all men, but a lot of them. Um, no, it's just, it is just jokes, but what are jokes these days? We don't know. Nobody, nobody knows what jokes are, especially not men. Um, <laughs> am I right, fellas? That's why I'm presenting alone. Uh, There is a winner. (laughs) And the Emmy goes to Stephen Daldry, The Crown. And of course, uh, Stephen could not be with us tonight to accept the Emmy uh, on on his own behalf, because probably me. Um, So I think I just leave now, and that's well done him. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. I'm going to read a piece here now because it's a big issue for women and it's bringing up a lot of stuff, I think, for a lot of people. It is the, um, I was going to say scandal, but I don't know. It's basically this sexual harassment accusations around Brett Kavanaugh, which has gripped America. Um, I'm just going to read a little piece from our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, who's been writing about it this week. The controversy over U.S. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh has gripped America since Christine Blasey Ford identified herself as the woman behind accusations against the 53-year-old judge on Sunday. Her claim that Kavanaugh assaulted her in a bedroom at a high school party in Washington, D.C. more than three decades ago has been strenuously denied by Kavanaugh, who was nominated to the court by the U.S. President Donald Trump in July, who, by the way, not very surprisingly, has been saying he feels really sorry for Kavanaugh and 
and you know not quite sure about it all anyway that's about him the better Blasey Ford effectively ruled out appearing at a special Senate hearing next Monday where both she and Kavanaugh were called to testify before the Judiciary Committee and her demand that an FBI investigation happens First, leaves the status of Monday's hearing very uncertain, though committee chairman Chuck Gracely has indicated that it will push forward with Kavanaugh's nomination if his accuser is not willing to testify. And I said it brings up a lot of stuff and I think it does both personally for anybody who's ever, and we know so many women have, especially when we were younger, things happened that we just brushed off and we sort of buried and we kind of had to get on with things. Um, so I don't think the idea that this is happening, you know, three decades later is is any issue. It happened and it shouldn't have happened. And one tweet that particularly stood out for me uh, when I was looking about all this actually comes from someone who knows very intimately and very much to her cost what this means for um, Blasey Ford, whose life is going to be completely turned upside down in the next while. Um, it was Monica Lewinsky. She tweeted, I am so sorry this woman was outed without consent. I'm sorry for what she endured as a teenager and thank her for her bravery stepping forward. So that was what Monica Lewinsky had to say about it. And we'll be watching that very closely because, as I said, Blasey Ford's life is about to be turned upside down. And um, it's really important that we talk about these things. And as I saw someone else tweeting during the week, you know, people just can't get a free pass or we can't expect this behaviour and condone this behaviour just because people were either drunk or because they're young. It's not an excuse. And this stuff has to be called out. And, um, you know, I saw someone else saying that what Brett Kavanaugh should really do is stand up and apologise for his behaviour. But I somehow doubt that that is going to happen. And we have some good news for a couple of our listeners. As you know, we have partnered with Brown Thomas, who are running an incredible style summit. Uh, it's starting this week and it's running for another while. Um, we were offering two tickets to the Charlotte Tilbury Masterclass, uh, Makeup Masterclass, which is happening. And you all know she's a queen of makeup and anyone who's interested in that kind of thing would know her very well. So we asked you to send in questions for Charlotte Tilbury and you did, you sent in loads. So thank you very much. And actually, I am meeting Charlotte later on today and I will be putting all of those questions to her. So hopefully we'll have some answers for you in the next podcast. But for now, we just want to announce the winner of the Charlotte Tilbury competition in partnership with Brown Thomas as part of the Style Summit and that winner is can I have a drum roll please JJ the winner is Reggie Coloca and she wins a 120 uh, euro gift card redeemable at Charlotte Tilbury and also she wins the chance to be at that event this evening in Brown Thomas which is going to be very lovely and I know Reggie is delighted we let her know earlier today that she won um, and Reggie's question was really nice about makeup because I think for a lot of people this is what makeup does it, it transforms and it it reinvents us and it kind of improves our mood to some degree and so so Reggie spoke about how she's had a bit of a transitional time in her life and she wanted to kind of reinvent um, the way she presents herself with makeup. So she was asking Charlotte about that. So well done, Reggie. And we also want to announce that we have tickets for another event that is Katie Jane Hughes, who's an Insta-famous makeup artist. And she's going to be doing an event in Brown Thomas at 1pm on Saturday. And the winner of that is Una McCutcheon. So congratulations to you, Una, as well. We'll be um, bringing you more from that style 
so much an interview with Charlotte Tilbury. We'll be talking to Sally Hughes and various other people who are involved in the summit. So keep tuned for that in future episodes. And one of those events is happening on September 27th. If you're interested in denim or jeans, as I know it's a perennial thing for people to find the right pair of jeans, Instagram style stars Emma Thatcher from A Style Album and Philippa Bloom of We Are Twinset will be pairing up to host a denim styling masterclass with premium labels including J Brand and Page Denim. And they'll be showcasing their favourite ways to style jeans this season so everyone can find their perfect pair. And that's at 5.30. So you can go to the Brand Thomas website and find out how to get tickets but we have two tickets to give away to that as well and we want you to tell us about your favourite pair of jeans and why you love them and the story behind them now it doesn't have to be too long but a paragraph telling us about those jeans why they're the best jeans you've ever had and any sort of associations you have with them tell us all about it and you could win a chance to be at that brilliant event with Emma Thatcher and Philippa Bloom you can mail us about your jeans at the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. That's the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Do tell us all about them and we'll read a few out on another episode as well. Later on, you're going to hear about the anti-slavery abolitionist Frederick Douglass, whose extraordinary story saw him travel to Ireland in the 1840s, where he was helped in his mission to kind of get that anti-slavery message around by a slew of incredible Irish women. Christine Keneally is going to be here to tell us all about that. But first to another amazing Irish woman, Anna Parnell. Anna was an Irish nationalist founder of the Ladies Land League and a younger sister of Irish nationalist leader Charles Stuart Parnell. Like so many other Irish women, Anna has long since been written out of history, but one woman has poured all all of her energy into reversing that. Lucy Keaveney first heard of Anna at a lecture a few years ago and has been doggedly bringing her political achievements to light ever since and helped to restore her final resting place at Ilfracombe in England. This weekend, there will be a ceremony commemorating Anna Purnell's life at Ilvercombe. So ahead of that, Lucy came into studio along with journalist Martina Devlin, who has also written about Anna, to tell me about her. Lucy, I'll come to you first because you're the woman behind this event that's coming up. Now, who was Anna Parnell and why should we all want to know more about her? Well, I heard I had heard nothing about Anna Parnell going through school. I have a degree in history and I really had heard nothing about Anna Parnell or the Ladies' Land League. And on the year 2011, on the centenary of her death, the Parnell School dedicated the school that year to Anna and her work. And I heard her story at the Parnell School that day and it was it's riveted in my brain ever since. It was such a sad story. Both Anna and her sister Fanny were great fundraisers for the Land League and it became... Fanny set up uh, the First Ladies' Land League in America and... Uh, now just for listeners who might not be familiar with the Land League or might have forgotten their school history, just remind us. Well, the Land League was... was there was a lot of poverty in the 80s after the famine and the landlords didn't treat the tenants very well and there was a lot of evictions going on. So the Land League was set up by Michael Davitt and Charles Stuart Parnell became the president of it and their aim was for fair rents and fi- fixity of tenure and fair play for the tenants. So Anna and Fanny would have been fundraising for them. And Anna came back to Ireland and it's rumoured that Michael Davitt asked her to set it up. But I think I'm not sure whether that is the case or whether she did it of her own initiative. But she began uh, Ladies Land League here in Ireland. And in the 1880, the Land League was 
banned and it it was illegal for them to hold meetings or anything. They eventually started imprisoning the men. The women had to step in. There wasn't as much as a scrap of paper to guide them on what they were to do. Absolutely nothing, no consultation. So the, so the Land League was, was illegal, an illegal organisation. illegal. But then the Ladies' Land League wasn't illegal. Legal, the Ladies' Land League wasn't illegal. Right. They set up, they, they had what I would consider the first database we've ever <laughs> had in this country. They got the list of all the, the farms that were being rented out, the size of the farms, the amount of rent that was being paid, the la- landlords and the absentee landlords and the tenants and the size of their families. So when they actually started to take over, they were absolutely on the ball when it came to taking over from the men. They held meetings right around the country. Within a short time, they had 500 branches. They had branches in England. They had branches in America. They had branches in Australia, in New Zealand and Canada. And bear in mind that that was before mobile phones or before social media. Mm. And they started holding meetings to, to help the people. And the authorities would have um, closed down those meetings. So then they decided that they would hold the meetings at the same time nationwide. They wouldn't have enough personnel to close them down. The authorities wanted to ban them, saying that the Land League was banned. And they said, yes, the Land League is banned, but the Ladies' Land League hasn't been prohibited. They went and sat with the um, tenants that were being evicted. And when they failed and they would have set up little chickens for them to live in, they became a thorn in the side of the authorities who decided it was probably easier to handle the men than the women. And eventually the men were left out. Oh, that was another thing that they did. They provided food for the men who were in prison. The, the men lived like lords in prison and Charles Stuart Parnell in particular. They began, they came, complained at one stage about the standard of the food. And one of the women said, let them eat the prison food and then they'll appreciate ours. Mm. So, to, to give you an idea of the type of a woman uh, Anna Parnell was. Yeah, because she grew up in a very, like, you know, well-to-do, yes, privileged yeah, situation. Yes, and yes. she could have just had a very leisurely life, not neither, doing any of this kind of thing. Neither really. herself or Fanny went, uh, took the easy road. They were both strong campaigners. But um, in Monona Heron, written by Nicola Depuy, um Andrew Kettle, who was one of the leaders of the Land League, he was one of the founders, he wrote, A passionate passionate and keen observer of the plights of the Irish tenants, Anna lived by her word. She was described by Anna Kettle, one of the founders of the Irish Land League, as having a better knowledge of the social and political forces of Ireland than any person, man or woman, I ever met. (laughs) She would have worked the Land League revolution to a much better conclusion than her brother. Okay. How did she get on with old Charles? Well, he came out from prison. He sidelined the Ladies' Land League. He froze their accounts. That upset Anna greatly. And Anna left Ireland and she spent a while in London and then went to Ilfracoon. She changed her name to Cerise Palmer and drowned in a drowning accident in Ilfracoon on September the 20th, 1911. And there were only seven people at the funeral. Three people from the Bats who tried to save her life when they rescued her. Her landlady, the landlady's sister, the parson who said the mass and his wife. And the first thing that they had to do when they were held the autopsy, I could cry. I, I've often broken into tears talking about Anna because it is, it does upset me the way she was treated. From the time that she died till the Thursday when they carried out the autopsy, 
they were going through her room and they discovered that she was Anna Parnell and that she was Charles Stewart's Parnell's sister. So the first thing that they had to decide when they had the autopsy was, would they have uh, an autopsy for Cerise Palmer or would they have an autopsy for Anna Parnell? And they decided to have the autopsy for Anna Parnell. So on, in 2014, um, my husband and I went decided we, I was retired. Got, I got the opportunity to go to her grave. It took us about three and a half hours to find it. It was in an awful state. It was embarrassing, actually, to see the state that it was in. The, the headstone was falling. It was completely overgrown. Now, the graveyard itself was overgrown. So we went off to a garden centre and bought a spade and uh, about five or six bags of gravel and some plants. And we did it up to the best to the best we could. And we've been visiting, that's from 2014, we've visited every year since. And in the meantime, I was lobbying the government, showing them the state of the grave. And in the context of the Celebrating Women for 2016, I thought Anna should be included in, in that group. And before Christmas last year, Heather Humphreys released money to do up the grave. And it's absolutely fabulous. Now, you wouldn't recognise it. And it was left desolate for so long. There is um, Fanny, her sister, is buried in a vault in Boston. All these statues and roads that are called after Charles Stewart and poor Anna languishing in a run-down grave. Mm. She's been forgotten by our history, mm. forgotten by our country. We owe her now to do something special for her. So on the 22nd of September in Ilfacum, they... It's very emotional, this year. It's it, really uh, it, it's, it's, making it, it's, me emotional, yeah. but you, you're obviously so passionate about this woman am, that yeah. many, many people just don't have a clue what it's, a contribution she made. She was fantastic. She was really a fantastic woman. I, I'm, I'm going to so bring bad. Martina in, but I'm going to find out more about the event as yeah. well in a bit. But just, Martina, you're listening to Lucy there and the passion and the fact that she found that grave, took it upon yourself and your husband to go and do it up and to really, you're single-handedly almost, Lucy, trying to, you know, raise the profile of this woman that we owe so much to, like you said. Um, how did you come across her, uh, Martina, and why have you got such an interest in her? Lucy approached me last year and asked me to write about her. So I did. I mean, as soon as I heard a little bit, I thought, this is extraordinary because, uh, like Lucy, I knew nothing about her. She's a she's not even a footnote in history. She's a dusty mite <laughs> in the footnote of history. And it's shocking, particularly when you investigate her life, as I've gone on to do. I mean, she was a pioneering feminist. Uh, other feminists who came after uh, look up to her and recognise what was owed to her. People like Maud Gawne, for example, have paid tribute to her. So um, they knew what they owed to her. She founded the first women's political organisation. She was a, a political agitator in that she differed from her brother, Charles Stuart Parnell. Um, indeed, that's probably why they didn't uh, get along in the final analysis. Mm. They did work together for a while. But he wanted money raised for the Land League to be put aside for political purposes. She wanted it spent on alleviating 
conditions for evicted tenants and for helping prisoners and their dependents. So she had a very strong sense of social justice. Where did she get that? Well, she because half, like we talked about her privilege. So she's half American. Right. I do think. And do you think that has a lot to do with it? Yeah. Yes. Uh, a very interesting family, the Stuarts. Her grandfather, Charles Stuart, was known as Old Ironsides, and he was a famous rear admiral who, in 1815, seized two British warships. So he was a national hero in the United States. Then he lived quite an unconventional private life where he had a very long-standing relationship with a married woman and it didn't go against him unlike his grandson Charles Stuart Parnell. So the Americans took a a much more laissez-faire attitude towards it and he was at one stage a democratic candidate for the presidency um, some decades later. So a very well thought of family, very wealthy too Um, And when Delia Stewart married um, into the Parnell family and settled in Wicklow, she was obviously bored out of her mind, you know. And I wonder if that transferred itself to the girls too. They felt there was more. I think the other thing we have to remember um, in terms of social history is that well-born ladies had a better idea of what conditions were like in what was called the cabin class than the men did because as well as having musical skills and an aptitude for embroidery a young lady was meant to visit poor people's houses right, and that bring was part of their yes kind of was part of their role Mrs. Lady, yeah. Mrs Beaton in her household right. management book of did 1861 <laughs> advised it so right through the 19th century and into that. the early 20th century young ladies did know a bit more about the conditions that people lived in. And Anna had a very strong sense of social justice and I think that that was what influenced her. She was also very outspoken. And we know that um, some of her first published work was when she sat in what was known as the ladies' cage in Westminster when her brother was um, a rising MP. There were only six members of the Irish Nationalist Party and they were running a really, really clever campaign of obstructionism. So they were blocking bills by talking endlessly. Joe Bigger, the Belfast MP, was wonderful at that. (laughs) He was doing that already. And when Charles Stuart Parnell was elected on his third go, uh, he didn't, he wasn't a politician immediately. Um, He needed to teach himself how to interact with people because um, he was quite reserved and, and he saw this obstructionism. And um, Anna was an art student at the time in London and she used to go and sit in the ladies' cage, which was up in the gods in Westminster. So it was a special place if you were yes. a woman, you had to sit in yes. a cage. Yes. yes, well, it had grills. Yeah. And so it was known as the ladies', ladies cage. cage right. And it was right up in the roof and she was up there observing and she wrote some essays about what was happening and she had a very good eye um you know she noticed for example that during the obstructionist debates the staff also were forced to sit there and she noticed a a sort of poor elderly white-haired usher who fell asleep and nearly set himself alight with his cheroot things like that i mean she just so she was always paying attention to uh, normal people yeah as opposed to her own class but the other thing about her is that it was going to be hard for her to marry. 
And it was a problem for a lot of these women. If there wasn't a big diary set aside for them, they weren't allowed to marry beneath Mm. them uh, socially. The family blocked it and really condemned them to spinsterhood. Once you got to 24, your chances of being married were halved. So she always wanted to earn a living, I think, and genteel ways to do that were art and writing. And she did both. She was a good artist. She took art classes. Again, she was hampered as a woman because women weren't allowed to do life drawing or nude drawing, and that precluded them from putting in for a lot of the prizes that would have given them financial stability. Martina, tell me more, and maybe Lucy as well, about her feminism, because I'm really fascinated by women at that time who didn't have any real role models in that area or there wasn't other people so that they could sort of aspire to be or, or do like. So what, what were the kind of things that she... The, the way men were treated as opposed, to, as opposed to women. Like, for instance, Charles Stewart got Avondale and there was a property brought for another brother. Collier in County Armagh. Yeah, and then there was just an allowance for uh, Fanny and uh, Theodora and for uh, um, Anna. And when Anna left Ireland, uh, her allowance was cut. And that's why I think she probably would have gone to Ilfracombe, because uh, rent and everything would have been cheaper. And she's also a very strong swimmer. If you don't mind me coming in here, Lucy, what it actually was, was the annuity system. So... um, Particularly in Ireland, they weren't treated as badly in England. The upper class women were given an annuity, which was a charge on the land. The men inherited the land. So as Lucy has told us, there were three brothers. Mm. Charles Stuart Parnell got Avondale, although he was the second son, but the father's favourite. An estate was, you know, got uh, in County Armagh for the older brother, John, and there was a third brother, and an estate was bought for him. And to give you an example of where the daughters came in the pecking order. Um, Anna and Charles's father died when they were quite young. Charles was 13, Anna was five or six years younger. Mm. And the um, his finances were in disorder. He was £65,000 in debt because he had spent that on buying an estate for the third brother. Okay. Meanwhile, he left £100 a year each to Anna's sisters and the mother. And they could not live off that. The other thing is that they were particular. Well, they could. I mean, they were better off than you know yeah. what what was called the cabin class. Yeah. But um, you know, compared with their brothers. But the real sting was that in Ireland rents were collapsing, the estates were mismanaged, the landlords were racking up the rental mm. costs, uh, the, the, the charges to the, the tenant farmers, they were really badly mismanaged. And as soon as economies had to be made by the landlords, their first economy was to cut off their sisters' and their mothers' annuity. And the women either had to face the social scandal of bringing their own brothers or their own sons to court, which many of them didn't want to do Mm. because it would ruin the good name. Or even if they did go to court, there were some cases of it, uh, judges wouldn't uh, find against men of their own class. Mm. So really, you know, the Anglo-Irish women, as they would have regarded themselves then, I know that term isn't so acceptable nowadays, but they did Mm. often regard themselves as English people living in Ireland. You know, they were... 
treated much worse in Ireland than their opposite numbers in England where the annuities were paid. So this is what happened to Anna. Her brother John was meant to pay her an, an annuity. He didn't have a profitable estate, ran it really badly. Charles didn't run Avondale well either. You know, he speculated recklessly. Um, and it was only in about 1910, a year before she died, that Anna was on firmer footing when she inherited some money and then lived off the interest, you know, quite frugally. And her leaving Ireland for England, was that in a kind of... She had fallen out with, with she had Charles? Fall, she, nev- she never spoke to Charles Stewart after that. Really? You know, I believe his wife would have written to her and tried to make, make peace, peace between yeah. the two of them. But uh, she never spoke to him again after that. At a meeting in March... 1881, a meeting of the Ladies' Land League, Anna said, I know that the work I am doing and that the work we were doing will not be appreciated uh, or remembered in my lifetime. Mm. But maybe there's a future generation that will come along <laughs> to give recognition and I think that time is now. Well, she was right. She obviously was, she was predicting right. you, Lucy, coming along and finding the grave and all that kind of thing. Well, That's I wouldn't amazing. say I found the grave. The grave would have been I know, there. I know. But I mean, they, if it was in such a disrepair, there was clearly nobody going the, the to see it. The Parnell or... Society laid a plaque there in 2002 okay. and they had also sewn a tree uh, but really, from 2002 on, I don't think anybody had visited. Did, did her brother ever talk about her um, or, you know, make any sort of assessment of her character or anything like that? He regretted it. He did say that she was, he recognised her smartness and he regretted the falling out that they had. You see, Kitty O'Shea has written about Anna and she never met her. And Kitty O'Shea Parnell, as mm. she became later, can only have received her information from Charles. She presented her as an out-of-control radical, that all the women in the Ladies' Land League were extremists and Anna was the so-called worst of them. And that must have come from Charles. Anna herself, though, did write to the newspapers denying that she had lost all touch with Charles. I don't know if they ever met again, as Lucy says, but she took umbrage and she was quite a frequent letter writer to the papers um, and um, and didn't like the idea that was bruited around that there was a, a rift. Mm. And of course, she wrote her own account of what happened. Michael David has written the kind of textbook account of the Land League. And Anna wrote a repost called... I have it here, The Tale of a Great Sham. It wasn't... Great title. uh, Yeah, I mean, that tells you where she's coming from, doesn't it, Lucy, on it? A Great Sham. And she felt... I think it happened, I think she wrote that book because David had accused the women of being violent. Right. And that annoyed her so much that she could not get a publisher to publish. 75 years after... Uh, her death that was published in no. the mid-1980s. Oh, was it just yeah. found in her papers? It was or? lost. It was lost. Yeah. She'd given it to Helena Maloney, yeah. who was part of the... Yeah. She, so Helena was out in 1916. She was imprisoned in Kilmainham yeah. with kind of, with um, Kathleen Lynn and um, Charlotte French Mullen. Uh, they shared a cell. They borrowed Countess Markievicz's comb. She was in another cell. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Helena was an actress at the Abbey or... Uh, a very good comedy actor, and uh, she was also a trade unionist. And um, she knew um, Anna Parnell. Uh, th- their paths crossed a number of times, and Anna gave Helena Maloney her manuscript right. when, as Lucy says, she couldn't find a publisher. Yeah. Uh, and um, 
then it got lost and it wasn't found for 75 years later. Elena's house was regularly raided and they thought the manuscript was gone, was had been taken in one of the hey. raids. And somebody was clearing out an attic That's years later and found the manuscript and published it. And, uh, oh, Ireland what's it House like as a book, it. Martina? Is it oh, good? it's quite impenetrable. Is it? Oh, dear. It's quite hard because mm. she, you know what's, but what's fascinating about it? She never once mentions Charles Stewart Cornell's <laughs> Not name. once? Never <laughs> once. That is incredible. She keeps it very general. Yeah. Um, she obviously kept very, uh, she kept diaries, I imagine. There were none found after her death, but she, she everything is noted down uh, who and where and what. I mean, he's the only one she doesn't mention. She does mention other people. And she keeps these very close notes. I suspect she then... Um, uh, burned her diaries and um, it, it was published in fact in the mid 80s then by Arlen House um, and I was speaking to Alan Hayes of Arlen House in fact yesterday and he tells me that he's going to republish it in December because it's out of print now oh, yeah. uh, I, I uh, got one of the last copies there were there's a line in it though that would break your heart and it's that she says, never as long as she lives will she ever believe what a group of Irishmen tell her. Wow. And oh. she's obviously referring Amazing. to the Land League right. men. She obviously feels that they were badly treated yeah. because they ran a very successful Ladies' Land League organisation. And then they were quite radical. shafted. And when the men came out of prison and wanted to, to take over the reins of power, well, they asked the ladies to stay on as administrators and the ladies did whatever the genteel version of Two Fingers was <laughs> in 1882 and refused. I mean, you know, they were very much downgrading them. And, Roisin, that's the common denominator when you look at so many of these women. When their purpose was regarded as having passed, mm. They were submerged, pushed aside, sidelined, marginalised. Yeah. What happened to Anna happened to so many of yeah. them. She was the forerunner in many ways. And I would regard Anna as the mother of feminism. And that's, right. that's why she has she has such an important role to... to her role should be recognised. You mean in Ireland, the mother in of Ireland, feminism in yeah. Ireland? The mother of feminism there were people in Ireland, earlier in, yes. in England. Yeah, well, that's really important that we kind of know. And like you say, trace it back and see who we're all standing on the shoulders of. So I think you're doing great work. We might finish by, um, Martina, if you would read a little bit from your story. Can you tell us the setup of it, the context of this? Yes, so... Um, Anna is one of 11 stories in a, a collection I've written about some of these extraordinary women. Um, I, just, I, I just became more and more conscious of the fact that there were a great number of them who had been submerged. And um, Anna isn't the first. In fact, I trace it back to um, Nano Nagel who pushed against boundaries um, in education by educating poor, poor girls um, uh, and boys too, but primarily girls. Uh, and then, um, you know, these women were pushing against barriers um, in all walks of life, um, up to and including uh, a campaign for the vote, 
which to them was the pinnacle, I suppose, of citizenship. If mm. you if you were a non-person, if you had no vote, then how could you have any kind of investment in society? Um, the idea was that your father or your brother or your husband would vote on your behalf and you didn't need to. So um, I'm sure we can imagine how Anna felt about that. <laughs> Not very happy. Um, so... Uh, I I wrote a, a short story about her for this collection called Truth and Dare, which um, is out in, a, in several weeks' time. And um, what I was trying to do with the women is um, use a lot of factual material but fictionalise it because fiction has magic in a way that writing a biography of them doesn't. Um, it allows um, an audience to, to walk a mile in their shoes. Um, and also it allowed me to position myself inside Anna's head in a way that I couldn't really um, because we don't I mean, she did write a bit and so forth but we don't there are big gaps in her life and she was enigmatic F- to my for my money the most interesting thing she said was the best part of independence is independence of mind and that's on yes, her the grave that the Parnell Society ah. put on the grave in 2002 when they went over it was well chosen and was mm. chosen from one of her writings. Mm. So um, I wrote a short story about her for this collection called um, Somebody. It's called Somebody because by this stage uh, she's, she's um, middle-aged, living in England and pretty much regarded as a nobody. She's using a nom de plume. She doesn't, the Parnell name was quite notorious because of the court case involving her brother. Uh, a little factoid I found out actually when I was researching it was um, there was a little toy made of Charles Stuart Parnell jumping out of windows, a little top-hatted figure who jumped out of a window because the tabloids had a field day with the idea of um, of him being in Mrs O'Shea's house and then having to make a rapid French farce-style uh, escape when uh, Captain O'Shea arrived who was also um, an MP too, part of one of his party. Very strange situation. Anyhow, um, so in the story, uh, Anna is just struggling to get by and she's pawning her clothes. She goes into a pawn shop and um, she's selling her clothes. And it's very clear to the pawnbroker that she's uh, someone of substance, that she's a lady, if you like, uh, but she's doing something highly unconventional. And um, she can't pay her rent, basically. You know, the annuity isn't being paid and uh, she's absolutely strapped. Um, she can't even afford her cigarettes. She treated herself to the odd cigarette now and again, which I noticed that a number of those ladies did. They saw it as terribly modern and emancipated to smoke. So she's gone back to her digs. She's uh, run the gauntlet of her landlady looking for money. She's um, had a cup of coffee and and squares her shoulders and decides to go back out into this teeming city of London um, with her articles and just turn up at magazines and newspapers and wait until an editor sees her, just shame them into it. They tried to make her feel invisible. They'd rush past, pretending not to see her, implying they were in the middle of urgent business. But she'd stand up address them, block their exit if necessary. Excuse me, she'd say. She wouldn't simper, though they'd like it if she did. She'd be businesslike. I believe my articles would appeal to discerning readers, 
I have them here if you could spare a few minutes to read them. I've been published before. Oh, leave your work, one or other of them would say. I'll glance over it later. But she wouldn't let them off the hook. I understand you're busy, but couldn't you kindly take a look now? I'm happy to wait for an answer. You're a weekly magazine, aren't you? Your circulation is impressive, but there's room for improvement. Have you considered including the female perspective on the issues of the day? So there's some character anyway. Yes. And yes. you're going to do her justice there at this event. So next Saturday, there's going to be a commemoration for Anna at her grave. The Irish Ambassador to England, Mr. Adrian O'Neill, is coming down for it. We will lay some reeds. The Ambassador will lay a reed on behalf of the Irish government. And we're hoping that Catherine Martin had did say that she would go from the Irish caucus movement, that there might be another read laid on behalf of the women of Ireland. After that, we are going down to the Ilfacum Bats are very, very well known. That's where she di- died. That's where she died. So Do you know anything about the circumstances of that drowning incident or was it...? There's this particular pool in Ilfacum and I think on the morning there was very choppy waters. The tide can be very complicated in, in Ilfracombe. And I believe she was told to, uh, that it wasn't a, a good morning for swimming, but she was a very, very strong swimmer. She swam in Dorking. She swam in Dorking, she, yeah. She did. And she, the attendant asked her not to go out beyond a particular point, which she did, got into trouble. Now, they went to extraordinary lengths to save her, but there was no lifeboat there at the time. On Saturday next, we are going to have a floral tribute for her and the Royal RNLI are going to have a sail-by right. to commemorate her, her event. And then after that, we're going back to the museum at Ilfracum and Dr. Margaret Ward, who has written, who's the only really uh, real Irish person that has written about her. She's very knowledgeable about about Anna. Uh, She's going to deliver the Anna Parnell lecture and that will be followed by uh, drinks and chat. General reverie and and remembering Anna. I'll hang up my boots at that stage. (laughs) You'll have done your bit for Anna for sure. I think you're going to be. You'll need to. You'll need all your wits about you. You're going to, it's going to be an emotional day for you this year. I think it. Pr- it probably will be. But um, I'm delighted that it has come to this. Yeah. You know, and when we did it in the very beginning, when we did up the grave in the very beginning, I never really had any long term aim. But I happened to meet um, Jimmy Deanahan during the Common Man celebrations in 2014. And uh, I mentioned it to him. And Jimmy said he had been a history teacher and he had never heard of her. So I showed him the picture. He said, I'll get that grave done up. <laughs> I and love Irish politicians. I'll get that done up for you now. Yeah, in fairness to Jimmy, he did. But isn't the key thing, Lucy, that the state is now acknowledging her? I think The isn't state that? for the first time yeah. acknowledged her by releasing money. So the state okay. will have a duty from now on to ensure that yeah. it is maintained. And isn't the Irish ambassador? The Irish ambassador is coming, down, is coming down for it. But we also did up um, Eva Gore Boots' grave and Jimmy Dean had said he'd do up that one as well. Okay. I think the state has a duty to ensure that it is kept up, that it should never be let go into disrepair Mary again. Mitchell O'Connor had a role to play I as miss well. I Mary, Mary Mitchell O'Connor. It was Mary Mitchell O'Connor that actually did the lobbying for me with, with Heather Humphreys. Well, listen, it's been fascinating talking to you. Well done on organising the event and I look forward to reading your book, Truth and Dare, about all the other women as well. It sounds like a great device that you're using to tell these women's stories, but also add, like you say, the bit of fictional magic to them.
as well. Can I just add my own uh, thanks as an Irish woman to Lucy for the work she's done on... uh, (laughs) This is about Anna, it's not about me. But you know, if somebody doesn't pick up the baton Mm. and run with it, they will get forgotten. And I'm sure, look, you approached me and I got involved, you approached Roisin and she's given us this platform. But for everyone that you approached, I'm sure there were many, many, many who just, you know didn't uh, engage with you but you kept going well, I've kept going because I'm, I believe I really believe in her and sometimes when a thing is right it's right and it, it, people say nothing to agree to have done it sometimes it's easier to go out and do something than it is not to do it well Lucy I know you're just one of these very dogged persistent hard-working people because I know the other thing that Lucy does very well is she listens to the radio and she, she measures how many women are on the radio and how many men and she has all that information and that's incredible work you do too so there's yeah. a lot to you now thank you very much both for coming in and all our listeners will be fascinated by her and I know they'll be all gone off Googling more and and, uh, and they'll can find you on Twitter and you're the font of all knowledge about Anna <laughs> Parnell. Anyway, thank you both very much. That was Lucy Keaveney and Martina Devlin speaking to me there about Anna Parnell. Now, the abolitionist Frederick Douglass escaped from slavery at the age of 20, fleeing Maryland and settling in Massachusetts where his political activism developed. In late 1845, he embarked on a two-year lecture tour of Britain and Ireland in what was to be a key moment in his life. His Historian professor Christine Keneally has spent years transcribing the letters Douglas wrote about his time in Ireland in her book, Frederick Douglas and Ireland in His Own Words. Christine is director of Ireland's Great Hunger Museum at Quinnipiac University in the US and her book shines a light on the incredible women who helped Douglas while he was here. I was really glad to talk to Christine about it. It's a fascinating story and I began by asking her who exactly Frederick was. So Frederick Douglass was actually born Frederick Bailey and he was born into slavery. He never knew the year or date of his birth. Um, It wasn't until after he died it was found he was in fact born in 1818. He didn't know his birthday but he met his mother a slave only about five or six times before she died and at one point she referred to him as my little Valentine. So as an adult he chose the 14th of February to be his birthday. That's nice. And where was he born? He was born in Maryland and it's thought that his father was actually his mother's master so Frederick was mixed race. He at various points in his life it's, it seems that Ireland becomes important to him and as a young man he had a mistress who was very kind to him and she taught him and her son the rudiments of learning. But when then, you say mistress sorry you mean somebody who was his who owned him who owned him yeah sorry you know the way sounds, we have a different connotation for mistress uh, sorry sorry of <laughs> course <laughs> I'm sorry no, it's okay. no, uh, mistress in terms of the wife of the master um, but unusually she was very kind she'd never had slaves before so she taught the little Frederick how to learn his alphabet but then her husband intervened and it was illegal to teach slaves to read or write and so she stopped and at this point Frederick even though he was very young knew that education would be part of his pathway to freedom so he was determined to continue to teach himself to learn to read and write and he polished shoes to get money and he made friends with some little white boys and he asked them what did they read in school and they told him they read a book called The Columbian Orator. So he saved his money and he bought a copy and he used that to really educate himself and to see how speeches were structured, how arguments were made. And What age is he around that time? He's a young teenager. 
And the other thing he did, which was amazing, at the age of 13, he started surreptitiously a little reading school to teach in private other slaves how to read and write so they would be able to educate themselves. But in the Colombian Arta, there were two Irish writers, Sheridan and Arthur O'Connor, and they wrote about Irish patriotism, and that always fascinated him. So that was one of his first early connections with these people who in some ways saw themselves as slaves but were very different in their form of slavery. So that was his pathway. And then another juncture, he met two Irishmen. After he'd worked in this household, he was then sent to work on the docks in Baltimore. And he saw some men and he helped them. And it was two Irishmen. And they asked him why was a fine young man like him a slave. And they said, you should escape. You should go north. And at that point, again, he didn't know really what it meant to go north. He'd heard of other slaves. And for slaves, how do you know how to get north? And so the idea was you follow the North Star and you escape by night time. And he made a plan to escape. Um, It was revealed to the person who owned him. He was actually whipped, so he didn't succeed. But he knew he had to escape. And finally, in 1838, aged only 20 and helped by a remarkable black woman who became his wife, he escaped to New York. And when he was in New York, he changed his name to Douglas and he married Anna Murray. It's an incredible story. I mean, just to hear how he kind of got himself out of it. So why does he end up in... And then he became in the sort of, it became involved in the abolitionist movement in a big way. Uh, well, how does he end up in Ireland then? So, um, again, it's that context was that even though he was in the north and the northern states didn't have slavery, it didn't mean he was safe because there was a federal law, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, which said it was illegal to help runaway slaves and that it was compulsory to actually return them. So he was always in danger. But after he and Anna married, they moved up to New Bedford, um, very famously associated with Moby Dick and the escape of on the Catalpa of the Fenians. And there he felt relatively safe because it was a Quaker community and some Quaker men and women gave shelter to him and his wife. And the Quakers were kind of famously abolitionist and very involved in that movement of trying to stop slavery. Yeah, the Quakers, both sides of the Atlantic, were known to be very progressive and abolition was one of their causes. They also believed in wealth peace and animal rights and prison reform. They're way ahead of their time, really. Anyways. Absolutely progressive. Yeah. So they, and very brave, so they gave him shelter. So he settled in New Bedford. Again, he worked on the docks. He could have gone to Canada. In Canada, he would have been safe, but he deliberately wanted to stay and help other people escape. And so he started to attend abolition meetings. And in 1841, he went to a massive abolition meeting on the island of Nantucket. And he stood out because he was an escaped slave. And he was asked, would he stand up and speak about his life story? And he later wrote that his knees were shaking, but he did get up and he did a great job. And present at the meeting was the most famous white abolitionist of the day, William Lloyd Garrison, who recognised this young man's really superb speaking ability and asked would he just work for the American Anti-Slavery Society for four months. But Frederick was so good at lecturing that he very shortly became a permanent lecturer on behalf of William Garrison. And again, it was this made him sort of well-known and again put him in danger. But people doubted that this very handsome, articulate man 
really ever was a slave. They and thought so, he was a bit of a phony. They kind they of did. Was he a faker, yeah. They did. And because he was very careful to try and protect his identity, he didn't always give the full story. But he was convinced that the only way people would believe him was if he wrote his own life story, a narrative. Now, again, this was a, a genre that people in 19th century America knew. Other escaped slaves had written their life stories, and they'd always been endorsed by white abolitionists. So what he did was not new, and it was published May 1845. It was endorsed by Garrison, who said this is authentic. But interestingly, in the preface, Garrison mentions an Irishman, the great Daniel O'Connell, who at this stage is known on both sides of the Atlantic for his work on slavery. And again, this is very important for the young Frederick Douglass, because Frederick later maintained that he'd first heard of Daniel O'Connell when he was a slave. And Daniel O'Connell, in 1838, had refused to shake the hand of the American ambassador in London on the grounds he supported slavery. And the American ambassador was furious and challenged the aged Daniel O'Connell to a duel, which O'Connell refused to fight. But this issue, this dispute between these two men, was actually played out in the columns of newspapers in Britain, in Ireland and in America. And Frederick claimed that his master was reading the newspaper and was in was furious and said, why is this Irishman interfering in our domestic institutions? And Frederick said he knew at that point, if his master hated this Irishman, that he would love him. <laughs> love it. So when he came to Ireland, his great ambition was to meet Daniel O'Connell. So before, how did he end up in Ireland then? So he wrote his narrative, May 1845. It was an instant bestseller. But again, this irked his former master who said, I am going to bring you back into slavery. So at this point, Frederick knew he really had to leave the country. And even though he had four young children at this stage, but he was persuaded by his friends he should travel to Britain where he knew he would be safe. So in August 1845, he with a white abolitionist and a group of singers who sang abolitionist song arrived in Liverpool. Did he bring his children and his wife? No, he didn't. He couldn't afford to. And his wife was a free woman, so she was safe. It was just he who was in danger. But he arrived in Liverpool and he, in advance, he'd been told there was a printer in Dublin, Richard Davis Webb, who lived on what is now Pier Street, who was willing to reprint the narrative. And this was very important because it meant that Frederick's story would be known in Ireland and also it would give him an income. So Frederick, two days after arriving in Liverpool, came over to Dublin. And that night he wrote to Garrison saying, I am now safe in dear old Ireland. Oh, and he came intending to stay for four days, but the warmth of the welcome meant he stayed for four months. And what's really interesting, Christine, is obviously you have reproduced this book uh, in his own words, but every speech he made while he was in Ireland. And this is something that hasn't been put together before. So it's fascinating to hear that. But what you're also interested in and what you also talk about is the fact that when he came here, there was women who really supported and helped him. And this is, as we talk a lot about in this podcast, about the women's story being written out of history, that often there's really great things that happen, but because the narrative has been about men all the time, we don't get to hear them. And it's really wonderful, um, similarly with Anna Purnell, who we talk about in the, on this episode too, that, that you have focused on these women who were really, when you think about it, I mean, this guy coming to Pier Street and this woman, Hannah Webb, who was the wife of that, the person you mentioned, she takes him in and looks after him. It's kind of a big deal at the time. 
it is a big deal. And for Frederick, women were important. So his mother, he only really met her a handful of times. He really had no relationship with her. his mother. She was on a different plantation. So he was brought up by his grandmother. But then when he was six or seven, he was sold into this household where he eventually learned to read and write. And then the next woman who's very important to him is Anna Murray. She is a free black woman, but a considerable risk to herself. She helps him escape. And he didn't go the traditional path of escaping at night time following the North Star. He actually escaped dressed as a sailor. And Anna had got him a sailor's outfit and false papers. So he escaped dressed as a sailor on the train, on boats. With, right. he, with her, did she? No. So she joined dangerous. him later? She joined okay. him later and they were married. So she away. must have been some woman because to, to organise all of that, the papers and the, the sailor uniform, the whole escapade. It's and she would have been punished. I mean, a general punishment for people who escaped was to actually burn them on the cheek. So it was high risk to... If people escaped more than once, they could be castrated. So it was very, very... So women in his life generally had always been... He'd respected that and he'd been a supporter of suffrage and everything. So tell us about the women who helped him when he came to Ireland. Yeah. Um, So I can just say about Anna, what sort of makes her more remarkable is she never learned to read or write. She was illiterate. But when he was away, she had to earn money to keep the four children and she was a washerwoman, but she helped in the Underground Railway to help other slaves escape. So she was a remarkable woman. She died 1882. So he came to Ireland and he found um, a very warm welcome and he described Irish abolitionists as the most ardent he had ever met. And what's interesting about the abolition movement is this is Victorian Ireland and women generally were not part of the public sphere. But abolition was one of the few movements where women could come to the forefront. And women had been very active from the beginning. But as you say, they're so written out of history, um, mostly by male historians, that we only catch brief glimpses of them. So there's so much work that needs to be done. But I know in the 1830s, there was a women's abolitionist group in Ireland and they sent a petition to Queen Victoria to end the system of apprenticeship in the Caribbean. So women had been there and working alongside men. Women were the ones who organised the petitions, the fundraising, who told men to boycott sugar that had been slave-grown. So they were very active in a number of ways. And so when Frederick came, he was invited to stay with the Webb family. And they lived on, it's now Pierce Street, it was Great Brunswick Street. And it was both a family home, they had four children, and it was a printing company. And Hannah was Richard's wife. She was a Quaker, she was from Waterford, she was very well connected. And she really helped to organise for Frederick's tour. Because as I say, he came intending to stay for just four days. And he wanted to meet Daniel O'Connell. That was his big thing. He did, and he always said he stayed. And he lingered in Dublin to meet O'Connell, which he did. Um, But she then, when he left Dublin, October 1845, she arranged for him to go to Wexford. In fact, her sister travelled with Frederick down to Wexford, to Waterford, and then onwards to Cork. From Cork, he went to Limerick, and from Limerick, he went up to Belfast. And in these areas, he was welcomed mostly by Quaker families, and mostly it was the women who hosted him and who organised his speaking tours, his fundraising, who sold his books so that he had an income. So Hannah not only did that, not only was she a great wife, um, a great mother, she was also the print, uh, the proofreader at her husband's oh, right. printing works. And she had correspondence with abolitionists in North America. Mm. So she really was at the centre of this abolition well, movement. It's funny because Richard, her husband, would be the person that people would know about really, isn't it? And her son then, Alfred, was also uh, well-known. But 
her uh, contribution has kind of until now, and that's why it's great that you're highlighting these people. Um, so what about Abigail Kelly? Um, so oh, Abigail Kelly was again someone that something is known about, but she was the very first white person that Frederick lectured with before he came to Ireland. And she always said that her passion, her fieriness came from her Irish ancestry. We don't really know too much about it. But like so many of the abolitionists, she was a great feminist and she shared the stage with Frederick. So she was one of the first American women to lecture with Frederick Douglass and they always stayed in contact when he returned to America. And then tell us about the Quaker sisters, Ellen and Anna Richardson, who were actually from Newcastle in the UK as well. So what's interesting is Frederick, um, he left Dublin and then he went and wherever he How went... How long did he stay in Ireland altogether? He was in Ireland for four months. But wherever he went, it was the women who helped organise not only his lecture um, engagements, but they organised soirees and parties for him um, in Cork. Did he experience any racism? I'm just curious about that because I can imagine like there wasn't that many black people in Ireland. There wasn't and that's the great thing because when he came to Ireland he said, I feel safe. But then after a few weeks he also wrote to Garrison saying, not only do I feel safe, for the first time in my life I feel unequal. He said, for the first time in my life I feel I am a man and not a colour. And he talked about, I'm able to walk the streets of du- of Dublin, of Cork, of Wexford, alongside white women. And nobody stares at me, nobody spits at me. In America, when he'd done that, he had been beaten up. At one point, he was sitting on a train with a white woman and he'd been dragged off the train. And this is in the free northern states. And his hand, his right hand had been broken. So he never experienced that feeling of being equal. And for him, it became very liberating because if you look at those four months Frederick was in Ireland, he really changes. And he describes, he writes to Garrison, he says, I've undergone a transformation. And it's very clear to see that Frederick finds his voice and his agency during his time in Ireland. And I think that's one of the reasons he never forgot Ireland. Throughout the rest of his life, he always references Ireland. He always references Daniel O'Connell. And in fact, he comes back to Ireland in 1887. And at this point, Anna has died and he's remarried for a second time. And his second wife is a white woman. And this caused outrage, even though her family were abolitionist, his children were abolitionist, but both families rejected them. And Frederick came to Dublin 1887 and he said he wanted to gaze on the faces of the people who'd helped him 40 years earlier. But they were all dead including Hannah. And instead he stayed with Alfred, who you mentioned. And Alfred at that point was a committed home ruler. And Frederick came out in support of home rule. And a few months later, when Frederick returned to Washington, he actually spoke at a home rule meeting. And he was the only black person to speak out in defence of home rule. So again, remarkable. We didn't say anything about these sisters because then no, we were I'm getting sorry. to it. No, it's from Ellen and Anna Richardson were their names. So they were in England. They were in England. So when Frederick left um, in January 1846, he travelled on to Scotland. From Scotland, he went to England and he was lecturing all the time. And increasingly, he was really homesick. He missed Anna. He missed the four children. And in Scotland, he actually wrote he was so homesick, he didn't know what to do. And he went out and bought himself a fiddle and taught himself to play the violin. In. And it whenever like some man for one man, he was. And whenever, even with his broken hand, but whenever he was depressed, he would teach himself to play. Sorry, whenever he, sorry, 
I'll say that again. And whenever he was um, homesick, he would just play the fiddle, and he said, and then I would feel as happy as a cricket. So that was very important to him. And in later life, he taught one of his grandsons, Joseph, to play the fiddle, the violin. And Joseph became the first black violinist, concert violinist in the world. So he was remarkable. And Frederick was very musical. And when he was speaking in Limerick, at the end of the meeting, he just spontaneously started singing, which again tells you something about how comfortable he felt. And the audience who came were large. Um, All his meetings were fully attended. And we know from the newspaper reports that over half the audience were women. So women really heard his message. Um, Cork women, the Cork Anti-Slavery Society, when he was leaving, they organised a soiree and they had around the wall placards saying, Cade Meal Falsha, you're welcome to the stranger. And they then sent the placards to his wife, Anna, and he kept them forever, so that memory of Ireland. But when he was in England, um, these sisters, the Richardson family, they realised that Although he was being so welcomed and was doing so brilliantly, he was homesick. He wanted to go home, but he couldn't go home safely. And so they, very controversially at the time, raised the money and purchased his freedom. And it was quite a legal process because he'd been owned by a few different masters. It was £150 at the time, so it was very expensive. And so some of the documents survived, so we know how complicated it was. But they purchased his freedom. And so in April 1847, he returned to America. That's amazing. I didn't actually realise there was that system that you could, but I suppose it was so out of reach of most people that it it wouldn't have happened very often. It was very out of reach and some white abolitionists actually disapproved and they wrote to him saying, you, if you want to come back to America, take the risk, come back. And he's, you don't understand, I want to come back. I want to fight for abolition, but I also want to be with my family. And so... What what do they want him to do? Just come back and take the risk that he would be you know, go back in, going having to go back into slavery. They absolutely did because they felt that by purchasing his freedom, yeah. it was actually endorsing the fact that slavery existed and there was such a thing. Well, very well for them, isn't it? In their privileged position to tell them not to All do that. very well for them. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because Frederick came back, he reunited with his family. But it's very clear because he had found his independence while away from America. So he moved quite far away from Garrison. He moved up to Rochester because he had some friends there. And these were the women who were very involved in American suffrage, uh, Lucretia Mott, etc. And in 1848, they held the meeting at Seneca Falls and they'd written up a declaration of sentiments asking for women, demanding, not asking, demanding women's suffrage and Frederick attended the meeting he was one of a handful of men to attend the meeting one of a smaller handful of men to actually sign the petition and the only black man to sign the petition so in 1848 he very publicly declared his support for women's suffrage that's amazing and you um, as a historian obviously you're interested in many many things what was it about him that particularly uh, sort of piqued your interest but also tell us about your tour because you're going to be involved in Culture Night and you're going to be bringing people around places that Frederick would have been so would you remember the first time you heard about him and how were you kind of fascinated from the beginning I was fascinated and I heard from him um, I've done some work on the famine the great hunger and so I always say my um, my decades, the 1840s, I love the 1840s. And at one point I was asked to write about Daniel O'Connell. And of course I knew Daniel O'Connell is the, cha- the champion of Catholic emancipation, the man who wanted repeal, who didn't achieve it. And I had some scepticism because you know I wasn't totally enamoured with him, although I admired him. But anyway, I was asked to write a book. And through my research, I came to see him really in a different light because he was such a champion of abolition. And he was known 
on both sides of the Atlantic. And he was fearless in his defence because it made him some enemies. And then that sort of broadened out and I came to see Daniel O'Connell as a great international champion of human rights because he defended the Maoris in New Zealand, the Aborigines in New Zealand, the rights of Jews everywhere, the rights of native Indians in what was called British Empire. So I came to... it really How was he under women? So he was interesting on the women um, because, and again, it's something that hasn't really been addressed, but definitely women attended the repeal meetings. But in 1840, there was the first anti-slavery convention held in London and Daniel O'Connell attended. People came from throughout the world to attend and the women who came from America came as equal delegates to men. On the very first day, there was a vote whether women should be allowed to be equal to men and the vote was lost. And so the women, including the great Lucretia Mott, etc., were forced to watch the proceedings from a balcony. And Lucretia Mott actually publicly challenged O'Connell because he'd voted that women should not be allowed. And so she challenged him and he responded with a public response. And he said, you know, I voted against you, but now I've read what you've said and I've really thought about it. And I have to say I was wrong. I apologise. Not very unusual. Another very unusual thing for a man at that time to be saying they were wrong or indeed in the present day. Often it's very difficult to find. Fantastic. <laughs> and so every day, every afternoon, and he was the superstar of the proceedings. Yeah. Everyone to so did he kind of, did it change then because he had changed his mind? Or? No, it didn't. The women were up there. But every afternoon he made his way up to the galleries and he sat with the women and they said it was the highlight of the day. Okay, that is brilliant. I'd never heard anything about Like when you learn about him in school, that's not something that comes up. So I think it's so brilliant what you're doing. And then from him, you obviously got interested in Douglas and you're going to be bringing people around uh, on Culture Night. Tell us where you're going to be bringing them and wh- how people can get involved. So we um, there is a, a Culture Night office, so they're handling all the people coming in, so I'm not doing the ticketing or anything. That's good. I'm just can't do everything. <laughs> um, so we're going to start at City Hall right. because Frederick's very first speech in Dublin was what is now City Hall. It was then the Royal Exchange on Dame Street. And it was very poignant because it was the exact anniversary of seven years earlier he'd escaped from slavery and the room was so full that they couldn't meet there again so his second public lecture in Dublin was at Eustace Street the Quakers meeting house so we're starting off at City Hall and then we're we have Crossing some the road down into yeah. the... It's where the IFI is. Beside it is, there, indeed. It? Yeah. Absolutely. And at each location, we have special guests. So the first guest is, I think it's not going to be a secret, um, <laughs> Don Mullen, who's a great champion of international human rights himself. Um, the second location, Don will be with us. But we also have music from the great Declan O'Rourke. Oh, wow, that would be stunning. That would be stunning. The third location, we're going to Daniel O'Connell's statue. because You know, I just have to say, I was looking at it and I took a picture of Daniel O'Connell just the other day because I was with my kids because they always point him out. He's got a paper, newspaper hat on his head. So that'll add a bit of uh, jollity to your your counter there. Absolutely. I don't know what, but I'm very impressed with whoever went up there and put it on his head. It looks quite cool. He looks like an admiral or something. Oh, wow, that's, I can't wait to see. Usually there's a pigeon. I hope it's still there. Yeah, there's a seagull. It would be great if there was a pigeon. On the hat. On the hat. I'll take a picture if there is. Um, So we have a very special guest meeting us there, but I don't know if I'm allowed to say. It's not Jerry. It's. 
we have a Frederick Douglass actor meeting us there who is going to do some of the speeches Frederick made in front of Daniel O'Connell. And past that location, it's very poignant because O'Connell had built this beautiful, beautiful hall, Conciliation Hall, just opposite. And it, sadly, it was knocked down. And when Frederick went, that's where he heard Daniel O'Connell. He said he saw him first in the streets of Dublin playing with some urchins. And then the next night, O'Connell was speaking Conciliation Hall and Frederick went to hear him speak. Okay. It was full. He was at the back. But at the end, he was brought to the front and introduced to O'Connell. And he was invited on stage. And again, he started usually self-deprecating way, saying, you know, I'm not worthy to be here in front of this man who is my hero. But what he said is, what my people need is a black O'Connell. And later in life, he would refer to himself as the Black O'Connell. So again, you know, that memory of Dublin right. remained with him. And I think meeting with O'Connell and seeing how O'Connell handled certain issues really um, had great influence on Douglas's political philosophy afterwards. Well, I can really see why he sort of caught your imagination. And I think this book is really important. It's called Frederick Douglass in Ireland in his own words. And where can people meet for the walking tour on Friday, the 21st of September? Which is well, we are meeting City Hall, but they have to book through right. the so go through the culturenight.ie, which is where all the events and there's so many things happening. Great Brilliant stuff. I mean, it's almost too much. It's always yeah. terrible. Like what bits do you go to and what? But I hope a lot of people go along to That's that because... It's such an unusual story. Yeah. And just if I can say briefly, um, our fourth and final venue is we're going to come to Pier Street, which was Great Brunswick Street, and just where Frederick stayed, both in 1845-46 and then again in 1887, where he was welcomed by you know, Hannah Webb and then by her son, Alfred. And we'll end there with Caroline Callery, who is going to be the great Hannah Webb. So it's going to be, I think, a very, a very special, poignant evening. Fantastic. So it's a walking tour. It's a walking tour. And so it's a great way just to get around. There's a few, it's not too far, not too much walking. It's perfect. Um, but thank you very much for coming in and telling us about him. I mean, I was looking at pictures of him yesterday and just I had never seen him before. So and handsome. Really handsome. And just, just just the idea of this man being in Dublin and, and having such a warm welcome. It's really lovely to hear you say that he felt so so warmly welcomed and that he didn't get any of that racist abuse that he had been getting in America. It kind of makes you proud that this was a place that Frederick Douglass could come and feel safe and happy and, and get his message across. Yeah. So, Christine, thank you very much for talking thank to you, us. Thank you, Rasheen. Thank you very much. That was Christine Keneally speaking to me about Frederick Douglass. And if you want to hear more, she is giving that talk, as she described, on Culture Night and for all the events to do with Culture Night. And there is loads and loads of things to do with women, particularly at culturenight.ie. Go and have a look. That's it for today. Thanks to Lucy Keaveney, Martina Devlin and Christine Keneally for coming on this episode. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com and remember, tell us about your favourite pair of jeans, tell us the story behind them and you might be in with a chance of winning tickets to that great event at the Style Summit in Brown Thomas. The address is thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. We do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time so if you like what we do then please head along to iTunes give us a review and tell all your friends about us the podcast is produced by myself Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound until next time thanks for listening Hold up, what was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.